Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. How's it going over there in your household? Well, I'd say it's sort of going okay. Um, It's got its challenges. Um, I'd say our children are being very, very good and sort of well-behaved and sort of understanding about the situation. They're trying to sort of see their friends on Zoom or whatever. It's obviously a bit, you know, sad for them to be separated from them. Have you thought about taking some kind of, maybe a bit like a Christopher Plummer in the Sound of Music type role, where you're like Captain Von Trapp and you line your family up every evening and they have to sing to you? Doe, a deer, a female deer, Ray, a speck of golden sun, me, a name I called myself, far, long, long way to run. What do you think? Well, I think you've, you've gone the other direction, which is that you would line your family up and you would sing to them. And they'd have to listen politely. Did you see that family? Um, they went. They, they kind of had this video that that got seen lots and lots of places because they did a takeoff of Les Mis, Les Misérables. It was very very impressive. Oh, I haven't seen it, but that's that's oh. inspired you to maybe get your family into musical theatre, which is strange to me because you you don't like musicals as a genre. Well, I did remark to my son when I to Sam when I saw the this family i said oh you know you 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 one of you guys should go into musicals he said but you, you hate musicals and i said oh yeah that, that is true <laughs> um uh so how have you been coping you've got notoriety again as a sort of as a kind of on the ground reporter but suitably socially distanced about what's been going on in your community yes i was tweeting about our local facebook group which i haven't revealed the location of but it all kicked off in there the other day uh the 24-hour shop round the corner somebody printed a picture of it and a sign they've got in the window saying 10 percent off to all nhs workers which i thought oh that's great and then they posted in actual fact they've put their prices up 20 percent overall and they're just trying to foster goodwill with this sign they're actually profiteering and then people were commenting saying this is disgusting i'm going to boycott this shop this went on for 
you know, pages and pages. And then somebody came along and outed the original poster as the owner of a rival shop three doors down. High drama in our local Yikes. Facebook group. Yikes. And what's your been your role? Are you trying to sort of bring together the warring parties at a distance? No, I'm, I'm staying out of it. I mean, I will say the people in the 24-hour shop are very nice. You know, they gave my son a free ice cream once. So, yeah, I, I can't believe they'd be doing something like this. But I've I've been tweeting about it, but keeping everyone anonymous all at the same time, which I think is the journalistically responsible thing to do. And you're sort of going for the kind of Sweden option. You're, you're sort of just in the sort of Cold War context. You're sort of trying to, you're trying to keep out of it. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to remain neutral as, as much as possible. So, yeah, that's uh, that's what's been going on this end. Um, shall we talk about what we're talking about in this week's episode? Yeah, well, this week we're talking about global cooperation in tackling coronavirus or sometimes the lack of it. It feels like many countries have stuck to self-interest during the crisis, closing borders, scrambling to buy out ventilators, competing for first access to vaccines. We're exploring whether that's really the case, uh, whether there's actually some sort of good news of cooperation going on and discussing ideas to improve that cooperation going forward. We'll be talking to science journalist Laura Spinney, who's written a really important book about the 1918 flu pandemic and asking her about the balance between nationalism and cooperation during that pandemic and its impact on the world. Then we'll be talking to Jeremy Farah from the Wellcome Trust. He's a long-standing advocate for global cooperation on health and is now calling for a major international effort on coronavirus treatment and vaccine research and for helping developing countries. And then we'll be talking to economic historian Adam Tooze about what more coordination on the economic response could look like and where the world goes from here economically in the face of this crisis. And in this week's Cheerful People, we're going to be talking to Jen Ashley, who is part of something called 3D Crowd. And this is incredible. It's a bunch of volunteers with 3D printers who are creating and uh, manufacturing face masks for the NHS. And we're going to be talking to Jen about that and also how you could get involved in that. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful this week is just the plethora of ingenious ways of of keeping a toddler entertained that are springing up online and all this. I saw a video the other day uh, for a game called Shake It Off and I played it with my son and it involves covering him from head to toe in post-it notes and then playing Taylor Swift's Shake It Off and he has to jiggle around uh, as as much as possible until all the post-it notes have fallen off and that was a great... I bet he loved that. He really loved it. I mean, they were all off quite quickly but then I was able to keep him entertained tidying up the post-it notes and and also he announced yesterday and i thought he was making it up he announced that he knows yoga poses and i thought he was just being silly but we found something online called cosmic yoga for kids and it turns out they do this with them at nursery and he was demonstrating all these poses i did a whole work well i said i did a whole workout with him i got him to do a workout and i sat on the settee watching him because i got winded after a couple of minutes but it's, it's brilliant namaste what's your reason to be cheerful well, I thought I'd give you three because uh, we need in these in these kind of grim times. Uh, Larry David, so curb your enthusiasm has made its way from Sky Atlantic, which I don't have, to iTunes or something, which we do have, and it's not iTunes, is it? What is it called? I think it is Apple TV, iTunes. You, you, you're buying the episodes. Anyway, yeah, and yeah. It, it, it was we watched episode one of season ten last night, and it's a corker. I thought. Oh, it's great. The whole series is great. Are you considering opening a spite yeah. store? I don't think, not quite, but but I think my, my wife is a bit of a 
sceptic about Curb Your Enthusiasm, but even she conceded it was it was good. Barry. Now, you mm. recommended Barry a long time ago, and I've been rather slow on the uptake. Barry is about a hitman who tries to become an actor. Um, we've so seen series good. one. Oh, it it's so really good. good yeah, it just gets better and better. I mean, so, so that's, that's good. And then the goats. Oh, you know in, I'm talking about the goats? Yes, in, in Clandidno. Clandidno. Yeah. Yeah, Clandidno, sorry. Well, basically, it's this thing that the, the, um, the humans have retreated in Clandidno, as everywhere, <laughs> and the goats have taken over. I mean, have you seen the pictures of the goats strolling I through Clandidno? It's like Planet of the Apes, but with goats. But there's something very sweet about them, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, who doesn't like a goat? High on a hill lived a lonely goat herd. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah. That's another um, song from Sound of Music. Exactly, it is, I know, that's right. But it, there's something very soothing about the goats, isn't there? Yeah. Maybe when all this is over, we should, we should all get a goat. It would also be the horns of a dilemma, but the... Um, uh, uh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> here's a question. How do the goats know the humans aren't there? Do you think they've got a sort of goat messenger who's the first one who goes and says, all right, lads and lasses, coast's clear. <laughs> so that, that one goes and does a goat recce. Yeah, humans not around. Yeah. I'd like to know if, there's a, if somebody who's a listener who like knows about animal behaviour, how do the goats know that we're not there? I mean, do they just go and then think, OK, well, there's nobody here, and if there was somebody there, they'd all run off? Or is there some? Can they smell from miles away that there's no humans around? What, what's the what's the sort of science of this? Well, I guarantee there is a goat behavioural psychologist listening to this, and they can get in touch. Reasons at cheerfulpodcast dot com. You're listening to Reasons to Be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're going to talk now to Laura Spinney, who is a science journalist and author of Pale Rider, The Spanish Flu of 1918 and How It Changed the World. Laura, um, thank you for talking to us. I'm, I'm guessing lots of people want to talk to you at the moment. Um, and I feel embarrassed in that beyond knowing the Spanish flu existed in the early part of the 20th century, I don't know that I knew very much else about it. So I wondered if you could start by giving giving us an overview of the flu pandemic and, and what the global impact was. Yeah, of course. So um, it emerged in the Northern Hemisphere spring of 1918, while World War One was still raging. Um, and that was a kind of initial wave. We say it struck in three waves. That first wave was rather mild. Um, then there was a second wave that erupted uh, in the latter part of August of that year, which was by far the most vicious. And then there was a third wave in early 1919. Um, overall, one in three human beings on Earth are thought to have been infected, and between 50 and 100 million people died. Um, so it was by far the worst catastrophe catastrophe of the twentieth century uh, and probably of any century and 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 why is it misleading to refer to it as Spanish flu? I know at the moment we have certain people we don't need to name them referring to covid nineteen as the chinese flu are, are there parallels between that yeah, there absolutely are in the sense that um Epidemics, pandemics have always come along with xenophobia and blaming the obvious other. Um, 
I mean, in this case, it's interesting because we know a little bit more about where this started. I don't think we have all the answers, um, but uh, we have more of an idea of the geographical uh, origin than they did in 1918. Uh, and the story there is that, in fact, you know, there are so many mysteries around that pandemic. And one of the few certainties we have is that it did not start in Spain. Uh so there are three theories about where it did start, which correspond to origins in China, in America, and in a British military base in northern France. But we do know for sure that it didn't start in Spain. And the reason it's called the Spanish flu is because um, Spain was neutral in that war, and so it didn't censor its press. Um, we know there were cases in the US, Britain and France, at least, just to name a few, before they were in Spain. But those countries kept that information out of their newspapers because they were at war and supposedly didn't want to lower the morale of the population. Um, when the first cases broke out in Madrid in uh, the spring of 1918, uh, they were immediately reported in the newspapers because there was no censorship. And they included the king, Alfonso XIII, uh, who went on to recover, but obviously his case lent it some visibility. So even the Spanish and even the people in countries that had been infected longer by the flu thought that this disease was rippling out from uh, Madrid. And that sort of suited the governments of the countries that are at war, so they encouraged that idea. And because... Uh, they were the most powerful countries in the world at the time, their name for it tended to stick. What was the balance then, Laura, between nationalism and global cooperation in the response to the flu? Did we see countries, it sounds like we were, we did, blaming each other, closing their borders, all some of the things that we've seen this time? Yeah, there was absolutely, there was all of that. I mean, there wasn't the kind of you know, you might say that we're not very well organised this time, but we were far less well organised that time, partly because the world was at war and had been for four years. And really no country had the resources to mount a very effective public health campaign, even if they had known what they were dealing with in terms of the disease itself. Um, and of course, there was this kind of strange information vacuum as well, which was partly to do with censorship at the beginning when the war was raging, but partly also to do with the complete lack of well, not complete, but but a large lack of uh, scientific knowledge about the uh, virus that was causing this disease. Um, and of course, what was completely missing was any kind of uh, global coordination. So there was no global health agency like the WHO or any of its forerunners. And in fact, the 1918 flu did changed some things, didn't it? I mean, it would quite, be quite interesting, I think, for our listeners for you to say what the lessons were. I mean, not least the setting up of the WHO. Yeah, I mean, I think that you can't lose um, 50 to 100 million people without that affecting most areas of of human activity. Um, so, first of all, yeah, there was this, I mean, just to take a step back, there was the, the sort of eugenics, the, the idea of eugenics that um, people were kind of responsible for their their state of health and, and any diseases they caught was very prevalent at that time. And so there was an idea that if you uh, if you caught an infectious disease, it was because you were sort of somehow inferior in your constitution. Um, and what the pandemic taught people was that that was not really a viable way of dealing with the uh, widespread infectious disease. You needed to treat that problem, a pandemic, at the global level, at the population level. And so it's from the 1920s, first of all, 
that you see kind of socialised healthcare systems coming in, where the idea is that healthcare is free at the point of delivery. And you also see this setting up of, not the WHO, because that didn't come until 1946, but its forerunners, for example, the health branch of the League of Nations, uh, which was set up pretty much immediately after the First World War and the pandemic. Um, and the idea was that viruses don't, pathogens um, that are contagious don't respect borders, and so we have to coordinate our response internationally. And as a historian of 1918, it must be a particular experience to be going through this one. I mean, do you do you have a sort of eerie feeling of having done your research for your book and feeling, you know, history is repeating itself, not just in terms of the disease, but in terms of the reaction to the disease? Are there other lessons you think we should be learning? I mean, I think there are a couple of things to say about that. You know, it, what's fascinating to me is that having forgotten that pandemic for so long, everybody is suddenly reaching for it as the obvious um, comparison. Um, and I have to, I find I have to point out that, you know, there have been other pandemics. For example, there were two other flu pandemics in the 20th century. Uh, one of them killed no more than 2 million people and the other killed more than no more than 4 million people, which are, of course, huge numbers, but nothing compared to 50 million people in a smaller global population. So, you know, why are we immediately jumping for the worst historical comparator? I don't know. So that's one thing to say. Then when it gets down to the sort of more human level, I think that there are, you know, real parallels that we can draw. And and I'm just struck every day by things I hear um, that, that remind me of stories I gathered from my book on the 1918 flu. In terms of human behaviour, some things don't change. And when you think that we are in a period now, we are waiting for a vaccine. A vaccine is the only thing we will have that will stop people falling sick. In the meantime, we've only got sort of symptomatic treatments, and even they're not very effective. The the main weapons we have in this period while we wait for a vaccine are social distancing techniques. So the things you've heard so much about lately, quarantine, isolation, masks, hand washing, and so on, which are the exact same techniques they had 100 years ago. And they're having the same debates, and we're having the same debates. So, uh, yeah, in many ways, the parallels are very, very strong. And and you've written uh, a very good piece in the New Statesman, which includes uh, thinking on the barriers to greater cooperation on coronavirus. Do you want to talk to us a little about what those barriers are and how they can be overcome in future? I mean, I think, you know, what's interesting about this pandemic now and the kind of world it has struck is that for some time now, and I'm not by far the first person to notice it or to say it, we've been sliding more towards isolationism. And in some ways, a pandemic is the, is the most powerful wake-up call from that situation that you could have, um, because it just doesn't work to... Um, to try and manage this kind of disaster on a national level. And, you know, even when the WHO declared a global health emergency back on the 30th of January, it said in the same statement, uh, you know, that closing borders was counterproductive and we advise that you don't do it. And almost immediately, many nations did do it. Um, And uh, we know that not only does that not help, because basically you just force people to try and cross borders illicitly, Um, But it also can be really counterproductive because it lulls governments and everybody else into a false sense of security, whereby they think they've stopped the problem. And then they find the germ is on the inside and they haven't put in place the other measures that they need uh, to contain and mitigate the problem inside their country. 
our title, Laura, is Reasons to be Cheerful. It's obviously hard to find them uh, in this in this time. Is there anything particularly you take out of the 1918 experience, which what what's the hopeful things out of that tragedy? There are always silver linings. There are always silver linings. And there's silver linings in the short term, silver linings in the long term. Just to give you one of many possible examples, uh, as soon as the pandemic had passed, the doctors and the scientists effectively realised that they had been caught on the back foot and that they had a huge hole in their knowledge. Almost every doctor in the world thought they were dealing with a bacterial disease in 1918. And of course, the flu is caused by a virus, but a virus is a is a novel was a novel concept in 1918. So from the 1920s on, you see um, the field of virology taking off, the field of epidemiology, which is basically the cornerstone of good public health, the understanding of causes and, and effects and patterns in, in health and disease. Uh, that takes off. You have the first really effective flu vaccines already coming online in the, in the 1930s. And then, of course, our NHS is basically an, an indirect product of that pandemic, socialised healthcare systems. The WHO is a product of that pandemic. Um, you know, the, we, we do learn. We do learn. It may take us a while, uh, but we learn from our experiences, including from pandemics. OK, well, look, Laura Spinney, history is very, very important in these things, as in everything. Thank you so much for joining us. That's my pleasure. Now, to talk about the way the world has responded to this crisis in health terms, in, ter- in terms of its cooperation on health issues, uh, I'm glad to say that we're joined by Jeremy Farrer, who is director of the Wellcome Trust, the global foundation that funds health research. Jeremy, thanks for joining us. I think it's it's right to start by saying that you and your colleagues had been warning well before people knew about coronavirus that the world was ill-prepared for a pandemic, just explain what your concerns were and 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 kind of why why you had them. Yeah, thanks very much. Um, it's great to, to join you. Um, where to start? Uh, in the last twenty thirty years, uh, the world has really changed in enormous ways. These new in- infections come from animals. They they come across from the animal world into the human world, and they cause. Uh, human infections. That's exactly what happened with HIV. It's exactly what's happening now with coronavirus. On the human side, uh, the mass urbanization that's occurred in the last 30, 40 years means that humans are living in intense, uh, intense close uh, proximity to each other, huge cities. Uh, in this case, Wuhan, a city of 11 million people. And then the human world is incredibly interconnected. Uh, we now can fly from all around the world in less than 24 hours. So that combination of human-animal interface, changing ecology, urbanization, and travel means that the world is very connected now. And so, as we've seen with coronavirus, things can go around the world within a few hours. And what was your anxiety before coronavirus arrived, Jeremy, about the world's lack of preparedness? Well, over again, over... over during this century, and as everybody knows, there's been a um, reduction in commitments from many governments around the world for, for many different reasons in the investment in public health. Uh, uh, it's been it's, uh, the benefits of public health you often see uh, when you prevent things, and therefore sometimes public health doesn't get the attention it, it really needs. And and over the last decade or so, there's been questioning of international organizations like the United Nations, like the World Health Organization. And so um, in the last five years, we've, we've had a relative 
polarization politically around the world. And so that decrease in investment in public health, decrease in a sense of uh, um, a globe working together and an increased polarized world means that, that the chances of something appearing, spreading around the world, and in an environment where people are, are perhaps not as working closely together as they did in the past, is the perfect environment for something like uh, a pandemic to take off. And that's exactly what we've seen. And coming on to coronavirus, what do you think are the key priorities now for global health cooperation on these issues? What would, what would you say are, are, the, are the biggest priorities? I think I'd put it in three ways, really. Firstly, that the absolute has to be support for the World Health Organization and everything they're doing to uh, particularly work with low-income countries, middle-income countries, and vulnerable and marginalized populations so that uh, the, the very best advice gets to the countries who, who will be devastated by this. Uh, and that does include protection for healthcare workers. So that would be the, the first, uh, the support for the WHO and everything they're doing in public health. The second would be, I don't think the world even today has actually realized the um, implications of this pandemic. And uh, we're going to face a choice between going back to an increasingly nationalistic, polarized world, or we decide that this is just sh such a shock to the system, we're going to come together and re recreate, reform, um, redesign the global architecture for these uh, bodies that have to bring the world together. And then the third piece is around the only exit strategy, I think, for this pandemic, and that is to invest in science and invest in science in an equitable way that ensures it's not just the rich world that will benefit from that science, but it's the whole world. And, and that science is around social sciences and understanding behavior and the implications of that. But it is also a massive global investment in diagnostics, in treatments and in vaccines. And uh, on that last issue, the vaccines say, We've no idea where the innovation is going to come from. It may come from America, it may come from Europe, but it may equally come from China or Russia or Cuba or, or India, and yet the whole world will need it. And so, for me, this is um, the best example, in fact, of a global public good, and that needs public funding. Yes, the private sector, philanthropic sector, but it's going to need public funding as a global cooperative uh, approach, which ensures everybody has access in an equitable way to the innovations that will come. Where are we up to in the global effort to develop treatments and vaccines? I think there's a WHO solidarity trial. What, what role is the Wellcome Trust playing in this? Treatments are moving quickly. Uh, the global solidarity trial coordinated by the World Health Organization has started recruiting patients. And I think 40 or 80 countries now are joining that with the aim that uh, we will generate evidence for the best treatments and prevention uh, from anywhere in the world, and it will be joined together through the WHO so that every country is informed as soon as we have a treatment that works. And similarly with vaccines, that uh, 63 days after the virus uh, sequence was released, uh, the first phase one, first study in, in people, uh, vaccine was uh, given to a person uh, 63 days after that viral sequence. That's something which would usually take five to ten years. Lots of people will be seeing the sort of disaster that is unfolding in many countries in the world, but also recognising that you know some of the poorest countries in the world haven't yet been hit by the kind of full force of this virus. How, you know, what, what is the 
scale of threat there and what and what can we do to preempt it in you know w- with people living in very very difficult circumstances compared to developed countries it's my biggest fear uh, my biggest fear is that as this virus inevitably spreads to central south america africa middle east uh, uh, south asia uh, where health systems are incredibly vulnerable and fragile and and overstretched at the best of times access to healthcare is very limited I think the pressure there on uh, this, when this pandemic inevitably arrives will be enormous. I think we are facing a, a, a health disaster, but this is no longer just a health issue. This is also a social issue, an economic and a political issue. And that's the big danger of when this inevitably hits those poorer countries of the world. And uh, we will be judged as a world by how we reach out to them and how we deal with this in, a, in as equitable and as fair way as possible. It's a, a judgment on us all. Well, look, Jeremy Farrer, you're obviously playing a really important role in in trying to coordinate the health response to this. I just want to say thank you for joining us, but also thank you for the work that you and the Wellcome Trust are doing. Great pleasure, and thank you very much indeed. Now, to talk about the international economic response to this crisis. I'm delighted to say that we're joined from New York by Adam Tews, who's director of the European Institute at Columbia University and author of a brilliant book, Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World. Adam, thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. Um, So just a big picture for our listeners. What is your assessment of the extent of global cooperation we've seen in this economic crisis, the economic response to coronavirus, and and how does it compare with, say, what we saw in 2008? Well, I think, you know, the obvious thing to say is it's extremely spotty. Um, There are certain areas where the basic mechanisms of international governance are sort of semi-working. I mean, the WHO, WHO still provides, as it were, the anchor of the, at least the monitoring of the epidemic as it's spread. Um, It hasn't proven itself to be an effective vehicle for policy. Um, at other levels, of course, there are sort of spectacular failures of coordination and cooperation. One thinks, for instance, of the unilateral ban imposed on European travel to the US uh, by Donald Trump with no, apparently, no prior consultation with any of the governments in Europe, which, which must be unprecedented in post-war history, certainly. Um, the area, I think, which, however, is most striking and perhaps least as it were, um, surfaced in the public discussion is at the level of central banks. And there we've seen very significant um, coordinated action, A, and then, if you like, unilateral international action by the Federal Reserve of the United States, which is the ultimate provider of dollars, is still the anchor of the global financial system as we know it. Tell us a little bit what the Federal Reserve has been doing and why it's important. Well, it matters because a huge part of global finance, whether it takes place within the boundaries of the United States or even between non-American actors outside the United States, is done in dollars. Dollars are the basic lubricant, the basic medium of finance and of most trade as well. And so there are trillions of dollars out there of liabilities. That's debts that people need to roll over because most debts aren't repaid in business. You roll them over continuously that have to be refunded over the period of this incredible and largely unanticipated shock. And so one of the big worries has been where are people going to get the dollars from that they need to fund ongoing economic activity? 
And how do we avoid this shock being amplified by a sudden contraction in your ability to get dollars? And the only bank which ultimately can provide an unlimited quantity of dollars, which is what you need when you're having a panic, it's all very well to say, well, I've got a trillion, but if you've got a really big panic going on, even that cannot appear enough. So China has three trillion plus, but if you've got a really big panic going on, that is not that large relative to the size of the Chinese economy. The only people who can really say, you know, if you need dollars, come to us, we can provide them in unlimited amounts, uh, is the Federal Reserve of the United States. And so it has both been pumping dollars into the global financial system in New York itself, where almost all of the main actors have offices. That's easy to do. And then what it's also been doing is providing roundabout mechanisms for swilling dollars into the global financial system. And that's something that the Fed is doing well. Bigger picture, what would greater cooperation look like? What more could countries and international institutions do? I mean, partly everyone will be conscious that, you know, we're going to face very, very big recessions in 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 different, well, throughout the world. Is there more that global cooperation could be doing to sort of stave those off, make them more short-lived, make them shallower? Yeah, I mean, you're right. The, the Fed stuff that the wonks like myself are all excited about only reaches certain parts of the global financial system and certain parts of the global economy. And the truly poor countries don't have the financial systems or the assets to really partake of this kind of Fed generosity. Um, it's very much a kind of inside club deal. So when we're talking about the kind of shock that's going to radiate out into the developing world, so beyond you know what we nowadays call the emerging markets, Then we're talking about the classic institutions of development finance, the so-called international financial institutions, really the IMF and the World Bank. And those come with huge political legitimacy issues, because really for a government to go cap in hand to the IMF is is the last straw. I mean, that's really an act of desperation. Um, Apart from anything else, because of stigma, the IMF is quite conscious nowadays of its bad reputation. So the deals are actually better than they were in the 80s and 90s. But nevertheless, it's difficult to do that. And the question, of course, is, does the IMF really have enough resource on hand to provide the kind of support that the larger developing world may need faced with this shock? Because this is really unlike anything we've ever seen before. I mean, you know, huge slices of the global economy are being idled. If you're a commodity exporter at the bottom of the value chain, you're in real trouble at this point. And that's not even to talk about the impact on their public health systems, the very stressed healthcare systems, and especially sub-Saharan Africa, where you've got large immunocompromised HIV, you know, populations living with HIV. So there's a real nightmare scenario. And that's where those global development ages, better or for better or worse, would be the would be the key levers. Um, so what we're talking about now is trying to expand the financial capacity of the IMF. That's a big topic. If this pans out to be the kind of disaster that it's looking like it might be, we're going to have to think beyond the existing institutions and think about structures specifically tailored to coping with this crisis. And we might be talking about really major step change in development aid. In other words, direct provision from the more rich countries to the poorer countries of various types of finance, whether it's to support ongoing expenditure or for the purposes of investment. One thing that strikes me, Adam, is, and we discussed this on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, is that 
because 2008 happened, some of the mistakes that were made then are not being made this time in terms of some of the flexibility of the central banks, certainly the Federal Reserve uh, and, and some of the international institutions. But obviously, always in these things, as you've just implied, you know, no crisis is like any other. And this crisis is certainly not like any other. Are there other things than, than the ones we've discussed that you think sort of, you know, if, if, if you were in charge of the G20, put it that way, what, what else would you be saying that has got to be done? Because, because it feels like while different institutions have done some okay things, interna- it hasn't been a coordinated international response, either on the health side or the econo- economic side. Are there other things without staring to the crystal ball that we should be doing that we're not? Yeah, I mean, the 2008 comparison is helpful up to a point. And and I think you're right that they have rolled out the 2008 playbook, as you say, in America. But but if you look at detail, it's really not 08 so much as 08 on massive doses of steroids. So the, the, the Federal Reserve in the United States buys bonds to stabilize the debt market. It did that in 08. It is currently buying American bonds at the rate of $90 billion a day. It bought $1.3 trillion worth of assets in 14 working days. Now, that is the sort of spend that Ben Bernanke's Fed in the 2008 crisis would rack up over a period of a year. So we are spending in a day what they were spending in a month. So this is 08, but the response to the crisis you know, is, is, is on a completely different magnitude at, at that level. If we're talking about qualitatively novel, whole new dimensions of policy, I think with regards to especially the low-income countries, we're going to be talking about massive debt rescheduling and probably debt forgiveness. A lot of the boom in borrowing in the developing world, after all, took place against the background of the debt forgiveness campaigns of the early 2000s. Um, and we are going to be looking, I think, at we're going to need coordinated policy towards the lower income countries that, that uh, addresses that issue. Because to, to assume, if you like, that we can continue with business as usual, that we can continue with the model of more business driven, commercialized, uh, market driven finance for the low income countries, which has really been the mantra of the last 15 years, I think is, is naive uh, against, against this backdrop. Um, it's it's just too dramatic, um, and the public health impacts are likely to be too severe if it feeds through to them in the way that it's fed through to the advanced economies, depending on the age of the population and climate and so on. There's a lot of imponderables. But in the worst-case scenario, they're really going to need more help. And how much do you think the high-income countries are going to be presented after this crisis is over? And it's obviously a long way from that. How much are they going to be confronted with the questions of financing both the sort of economic uh, sort of um, slowdown or recession, massive recession that will have happened and the sort of paying for that? I I do think this is the crucial question, because right now everyone seems to be agreed. I mean, even fiscal hawks like the Germans have agreed that, you know, we need to, to remove the brakes and we're just going to spend, spend, spend in whatever form seems necessary. It's really convulsive, even more dramatic than in 08. There's just a decision, okay, this is a public health emergency. And furthermore, we're doing this crazy thing where we're putting the economy in a deep freeze. We need to keep it alive. So there's an open-handed policy of spending right now. But that is going to accumulate. 
very substantial uh, financial obligations into the future. Now, ultimately, as we've heard to say, we owe that to ourselves. So ultimately, this then becomes a huge distributional issue insofar as we borrow this from our own populations rather than borrowing from foreign investors. We owe it to ourselves. So the question ultimately becomes two or three years down the line, who in our society do we think ought to foot the bill? And there's lots of different ways of answering that question. You could do it through just writing off the debt. You could do it through having slightly higher inflation, which eats away at the value of that debt. Or you could do it through taxation. And of course, as soon as you say taxation, you say, who's taxation on whom for what? Are you going to do it through VAT on people's consumption? Are you going to do it through income tax? Is that going to be more progressive and going to hit higher incomes? What we've done is we've stored up for ourselves a huge range of very difficult financial questions, fiscal policy questions, tax questions four years from now. And there is going to be a temptation on the part of the same people who argued for austerity, say, from about 2010 onwards, there's going to be a temptation for them to say, look, in light of this huge pile of debt that we, that we racked up, you know, everything's off. No more progressive politics, no more welfare spending. Everything has to be cut um, and it will become a cross on which they will crucify or attempt to crucify progressive politics for decades to come. Well, because we are reasons to be cheerful, can you can you give us the other side of that? What's the alternative version of that that's less depressing? Well, I think if you look from the finance side, the crucial thing that we've learned again, and this is an argument that progressives have been making ever since 08, is that difficult as finance is, and as dangerous as it can be in kind of putting a noose around your neck, it's also something that we actually control. And the lesson I think we should learn from the last month of central bank activism is that if there's something we want to do, there are ways of figuring out how to pay for it. So if there is an agenda like trying to stabilise the public health crisis, there are actually ways in which we can uh, we can finance that. Finance is not is a facilitative factor, and if it goes wrong, it can throttle us. But if we have activist policy in place, and we have central bankers and treasury officials willing to play the game of expansion, then there's really nothing we can't pay for that we can do. And in the context of climate change, that's a crucial lesson to learn, right? We need to basically be profoundly sceptical about any argument that says we can't afford that. The question needs to be, what is it that we want to do? Can we mobilize the people? Can we mobilize the resources? Do we have the technology, which right now, of course, is the killer issue with regard to corona? Do we have the vaccine? Do we have the tests? Money isn't the object, right? The thing is, do we actually as a society have the capacity to organise around these collective projects? Once we've figured out what we want to do, the issue of how we pay for it is a second order consideration, a crucial one, and one that can really, really blindside you if you don't get it right, but one that's eminently fixable. Okay, Adam Tooze, that was absolutely brilliant explanation of, of where we are and some grounds for hope. Thanks so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. So what did you think, Jeff? Well, talking to Laura, you are struck by the old saying that there's nothing new under the sun. There are so many many parallels with not just the the uh, Spanish flu, but other pandemics of the early part of the 20th century. But I do feel positive that we're connected. And you and I were talking before we started recording about how the fact that we have the, the internet and social media is making a, a huge difference. So not only getting information out there, but the the way that people are forming networks to cope with 
all been sort of separated from each other. So there's there's sort of some positives there. I think you know you can look at that 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 example from history, but see in some ways we're much further on than they were a hundred years ago. I suppose a couple of things struck me. One is it's it's such a cliche, but it's so important to learn from history. Because, as you say, not, no no two historical events are exactly the same, but but it's so easy to sort of not eat, to, to be just kind of ignorant of the history. And both when it comes to the economy and thinking about the past and the, the health crisis, I think both, but you know, history is an incredibly important, it teaches us incredibly important lessons. And then I suppose I was also struck by what what Jeremy said about the real you know, threat that we face in that, that developing countries are going to face, and the import, the, the the absolute vital importance of doing all we can to help developing countries, and then what Adam said about the big choices we're going to face economically down the road. You know, we think that we think that we've sort of taken some big choices, um, and and you know, countries have definitely, but there are big big choices that are going to be. You know, as we emerge from this crisis, there are going to be big, big choices confronting us about who bears the burden, how we sort of share risk both within countries and between countries. Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And here in our cheerful people slot this week, we're delighted to say hello to Jen Ashley, who is a director of Women Who Code. Uh, Jen also volunteers with 3D Crowd. And and Jen, really, that's what we want to talk to you about. Um, You've been involved in something incredible involving 3D printers. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, so uh, it started with a handful of people last week. Uh, It's now grown to around 4,000 plus volunteers. And so that's that's really incredible. I didn't realize there's so many 3D, you know, printers in uh, in the UK. And should we tell people what it is that you've been printing? 
Oh yes, sorry. Uh, yes, it's the face shields for uh, you know for our uh, medical and health folks uh, in uh, on the front line. Uh, so there's the mask that the, you know that the nurses, doctors will wear. Uh, this is the second layer, so that if someone's coughing, they won't get the droplets. And and how many of these things have you made so far? Let me just talk about the the shield first, because there there are several parts to it. So the three D printed part uh, is called the headband. And uh, there's a chin part as well. And then there's the clear part, which is uh, called the visor. Um, so we ordered 80,000 uh, of the visors. Uh, they're, they're being made right now. Um, but in terms of orders, we are now at 200,000 uh, orders for face shields. So it's a lot. <laughs> and, and you're getting these directly into the, into the hands of NHS workers? Uh, yes, so we're yeah, delivering them to NHS, GPs, uh, care homes. Uh, there's even a pharmacy, I think, uh, that ordered from us uh, because they just wanted to protect their staff, basically. Can I just ask, Jen, I think Jeff and I need to make a sort of confession here. He, he's been relatively discreet about this. I mean, we have enough trouble with our normal printer, right, with a piece of paper <laughs> in it. Uh, so I think you need to sort of get some, like, basics into us. I mean, just tell us... What do you put into the printer and then what comes out of the printer? And does it get jammed? You know, do you have to switch it on and off? Like uh, uh, normal printers, you know, have got ink, right? So there's this thing called the filament that, that you need uh, to kind of feed the printer with something. So that's what you really use as the ink, sort of. How long does it take to make a, a one of these? Different printers will, you know, will um, take like different times to finish like the same design sometimes. Um, but obviously, it's not going to be very that much. Also, there are ways to kind of stack the uh, the items that you're printing. So there are people who can like do eight or sixteen, or depending on. Um, also, you can like uh, lay them out so they you maximize the the space. We don't want to stop, you know, the moving train um, because we know. I mean, I, you know, as you've heard, we've got two hundred thousand uh, orders <laughs> that we need to get to people's hands. So, if somebody's listening to this and they own one of these three D printers, can they get hold of the of the file, the design, the pattern, and join in and help you out with this and get these things to NHS workers? Yeah, so if they go to the website, which is 3dcrowd.uk, so that's number three, and then D for, uh, yeah, <laughs> design, and then um, crowd, uh, so 3dcrowd.uk, there is a form there for uh, volunteers. Uh, there are two types. You can volunteer as a 3D printer, or if you don't have a 3D printer, you can also volunteer for, you know, for other things. Uh, we're always looking for help because it's a growing community, so we're trying to manage the community as well. We're managing it on Slack right now. Uh, so far, we're managing it okay, but this is it's growing every day. So, um, yeah, so if someone wants to help out, yeah, do sign up via the website. Well, all the best. It's, it's an incredible initiative. Um, and I take it they're not easy to come by these uh, at the moment for those of us who think, oh, I wish I could be 3D printing. They're not, it's not sort of something you can just uh, easily get your hands on a 3D printer if you don't already own one. Um, you can probably order it from Amazon. And one way that people can help really is to donate via our GoFundMe uh, page because we're uh, what we're trying to do is cover some of the material and uh, transportation costs uh, that people are incurring uh, because we don't want you know people to get into debt <laughs> if, just because they want to help out. Uh, Jen, Ashley, thank you so much for being our cheerful person this week. 
Thank you very much. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, here we are in the outro, and uh, we've had plenty of emails so far during social distancing, and uh, just a, a taste of that. This first one comes from Kelsey Flott, who says, Dear Ed and Jeff, Namaste from Nepal. We are locked down in Kathmandu and eagerly consuming lots of reasons to be cheerful. In fact, your podcast has kept us company across 10 countries over the past five months. We learned about the case for veganism on empty desert roads in Namibia. Uh, debated the four-day working week on a ferry in Lake Malawi and admired the articulation of young activists on a sleeper train rolling through Madhya Pradesh in India. We even took reasons to be cheerful with us to the base camp of Mahdi Himal before arriving in our current state of Nepali isolation. Our reasons to be cheerful come easily, privileged to travel this far and long, good health and the extraordinary graciousness of the Nepali people. Uh, This is from Kelsey and Tom and they also said and some suggestions uh, for stuff we could talk about in future episodes. So we'll uh, we'll have a look at those. What a lovely email. I wanted to raise one from uh, Lily uh, from Edinburgh, who said, you asked for ideas of discussion subjects during this strange time. As a relatively young solo dweller, I'm 26. I'm feeling quite ignored by a lot of the general chat and news coverage of social distancing, which implies that everyone will have housemates or families they live with. While I love living alone, there's a peculiar toughness to knowing I won't so much be able to sit in a room with anyone, let alone have a hand on my arm or, God forbid, a hug for weeks or months on end. Any coverage I've seen of loneliness has been about older people. I can't stop thinking that the fact that solitary confinement is used as a special layer of extra punishment. The fact that the press, etc., aren't discussing how tough this is for live aloneers kind of makes it worse again. Not only is it a special kind of crap, but we're also forgotten about. So you discussing it would inherently make it a lot better. Thank you, Lily, for sending us that thought, and I'm sure you speak for a lot of people. And and we received this email from John, John Merritt, who says, I don't know how alone I might be in this view, but I would really like some of the day-to-day media I consume to try and stay out of reporting on coronavirus. My logic is that it's hard enough being isolated from friends and family and being stuck for purpose whilst uh, work is in limbo without doom and gloom reminders of the impending apocalypse too. It's It's difficult, isn't it? Because, you know, we feel that we have to stay relevant during this but maybe there are other things that you'd like to hear about maybe you know something we've touched on on this episode is is what the world starts to look like when we come out the other side of this and and maybe that's something we could spend a bit of time on i mean i think i know what john means because i certainly look around for things to listen to which are which are not about coronavirus um speaking for myself so we're kind of feeling our way here, I suppose, uh, and, and we'd love to hear thoughts on things that we should be covering. I mean, I think I think the, the, the flip side of what John's talking about is at the same time, lots of things feel, I mean, they're obviously not irrelevant, but up against the, the sort of existential threat that coronavirus is, lots of things can feel secondary just within this moment of emergency. And, and of course, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us through the website, cheerfulpodcast.com. I, I'd like to thank our guests. Really sort of excellent and really great that they spared the time. Laura Spinney, Jeremy Farrer, Adam Tooze. And thanks to this week's cheerful person, Jen Ashley. Emma Caution produces our podcast with backup and research from Joel Pierce, Eli Madison-Evans, Pavlina Dragonova, and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the idents at Seed, composed the music, and the artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been Jeff Lloyd. He's been Ed Miliband. 
And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.